0: Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. As we did this morning, I want to give you a couple passages that we're going to visit. So I want to give you an opportunity to turn there. But if you will, turn to Jeremiah, Prophet Jeremiah, uh, right after the major prophet Isaiah, Isaiah Jeremiah. Of course, Jeremiah also wrote uh, the book of Lamentation, which is a funeral dirge, uh, speaking of um right at the end of the uh, nation of judah the kingdom of judah being carried into captivity but turn to jeremiah if you will and then turn to one of the historical books second chronicles now if i say corinthians ignore me i have one place where i'm going to invoke a corinthian passage but my soul my mind when i get in chronicles and corinthians uh, you'll have to guess which one i really mean but i mean second chronicles this evening and I want to particularly read a passage out of there in the midst of the message and there'll be a couple times I'll reference to Jeremiah and the balance of our time will be here in Zechariah. Zechariah. The theme, the theme of Zechariah is God remembers. In fact, that is indeed Zechariah's name. Jehovah remembers. His father, uh, Zechariah's father, Berkiah, his name means Jehovah will bless, and uh, Ido, which is Berkiah's son, and the name means the appointed time. And in a general sense, you could see something of a picture of what is concurring in the nation of Israel at this time. Uh, They are about in the appointed time that God is set. They are about to return to the land that God had blessed them with all because God had remembered his eternal covenant. You could flip that backwards and it works the same way that God had remembered them and that God had chosen to bless them and that he would bless them at the appointed time. Those things work in harmony. They did with the God of the Old Testament who continues without variance in this age and he works in the same capacity at this time. So often as with the children of Israel, you and I get ahead of the will and directive of God. As we'll see in these passages tonight, so often is the case that instead of just getting ahead, we actually resist the beckoning and wooing of a God towards our heart. And that's part of the cry that Zechariah is going to make this evening. But Zechariah is a contemporary of Haggai, which is mentioned just just the uh, minor prophet beforehand. In fact, their first Public messages come within two months of each other and they come at a time when the remnant of Israel needed it most. They've been carried away into captivity. Now 70 years or so have passed. They've returned to the land of Israel to build. About 50,000 of them under Ezra have returned for the, the preeminent purpose of rebuilding the temple of God. And of course they get there and they get underway and then all of a sudden there's a number of problems that exist. Uh, Haggai identifies some of them. There were misplaced priorities. Uh, Ezra identifies the fact that Samaritans were in the land and wooed unto them and said, Hey, let us join you and build for we are like you. We have the same God as you do. We have the same plans and dreams as you do. Just let us build together. That's the cry so often of the compromiser and the apostate today, let us build together. We're going the same way. Well, they weren't. And the wisdom that God had given the leaders, Erebron and Joshua, they defied any help. And you'll note that the Samaritans, when rebuffed, turned wholeheartedly in their angst and anger against the children of Israel, against those that were rebuilding the tabernacle or the temple, rather, of God. And I would submit to you, that's always the outcry of Pride. You can tell the pride of a man by how it responds to things that do not go his way. And such it was to the Samaritans. Uh, later, Hayagi identifies some other things, the indifference that they had. After being paused because of the political, civil issues the Samaritans have caused, they had no real desire to finish what had been started. And there's war, there's a poor harvest, there's famine, there's a number of insulary things as well, but the work of God has stopped. And it will be stopped for a total of 16 years and there'll be two prophets primarily that God will use. Haggai, the pointed, blunt, uh, pugilistic prophet. He just rips into them for two chapters. That's why I only got two chapters, you know. Two prophecies directing at them, directing at the causes that they have created and what they must do. He directly affronted their sin. And then Zechariah, some 14 chapters. And Zechariah, the prophet, with the exception of these six verses here, The general means to Zechariah is really a word of encouragement to them, a consistent encouragement to them, a look ahead at the promises of God, a look ahead at the coming Messiah that not once but twice he'll call him the branch and the Savior, a look at the results of those that have despised the nation of Israel and those that have sought the destruction of Jerusalem, a look at their end, The look at the end of those that would rebel. He looks at the promise of the blessings of God, and he looks at the singular fact that God remembers and that in his time appointed, he will bless his people. Fourteen chapters of consistent encouragement, Zechariah lays at charge in his various messages, prophecies, and visions. Yet in this particular section, these six verses, the passage here is set forth that shows forth this pleasure with all the might that God has. Notice, if you will, in verse number 2. The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. That's a statement of fact. It's a statement in which one could analyze with great clarity. The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. In fact, drop your eyes down a little bit to verse number 12. He's going to talk, the angel of the Lord answering the Lord of hosts. How long wilt thou have mercy on Jerusalem, on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had, what's your word? Indignation. Uh, that idea uh, there of sore, displeased, is the idea of wrath, being wroth or wrathful. In verse number 12, when you get to the idea of indignation, you're talking beyond the essence of that. God is sorely angry and displeased about the fathers that preceded their children, that Zechariah is dealing with him. he sore pressed upon them. In fact, so much so, the kingdom is no longer to be found in existence. It's quite an interesting at the result of the great punishment that God placed upon uh, those fathers around 586 B.C. in the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. It's an interesting study to find out how his displeasure manifested itself in consequences. But you have a fact of that in the text here. Look at verse 1 in the eighth month in the second year of Darius. That's an interesting thing. Here's why it's interesting. Daniel, Zechariah, and Haggai begin to do something that the previous prophets before them did not do. They began to identify all the time frames of how God would deal with his children as it correlates to a Gentile king. When you think of Samuel You think of 1st, 2nd Samuel, you think of 1st, 2nd Chronicles, you think of 1st, 2nd Kings. The books that are written historically, how does God identify the timing of his working? For instance, in Isaiah even says it this way. Isaiah chapter 6, now it was in the year that who? King Uzziah died, that I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The predominant amount of all of the historical writings and all of the early prophets, even through Jeremiah, identify events by a Hebrew king. But that will not be the case with Daniel. And that will not be the case with Haggai. And that will not even be the case with Zechariah. And if the time will tell and you continue, you could go all the way to Luke chapter 2 and it's not the case in Luke either. Do you remember how Luke chapter 2 starts off? It came to pass in the days that ruled that all the world should be taxed. The coming of Messiah was directly prophesied as it relates and was, uh, was announced as it relates to the rule of a Roman imperial king. No more would there be a Hebrew kingdom that would have any sustaining recognition in the halls of heaven. From the carrying away of captivity, God never commenced again any record by a Hebrew king. The very fact that it's identified by a Gentile king speaks of what God had done in His judgment and sore displeasure to the nation of Israel. They, because of their idolatry, had plunged themselves into a consequence that would be multi-generational. Notice down there in verse number 12, the indignation, these three score and 10 years, 70 years. Now, if we take the math and use 25 years as a generation, which is a general average, three generations are having to directly deal with the consequence that had fallen out upon their fathers. These very fathers that are mentioned in verse number two, that should not have surprised them. For throughout the Old Testament, the opening passages, you can find again and again the promises of God that result when one rejects his wooing and his calling. When one rebels against the conveyance of truth, consequence must abound despite the fact that God is slow to anger and rich in mercy, as the 103rd Psalm says. Listen to these verses. I think of Exodus chapter 34, and I've just got phrases here, but Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. He promised to visit or visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 18, visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the children and unto the third and fourth generation. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 9, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children unto uh, the children's children unto their third and to the fourth generation of them that hate me. In fact, we could continue the 109th 109th Psalm. Let the iniquity of the fathers be remembered with the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Isaiah 65, your iniquities. This is six and seven of that chapter. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, saith the Lord, uh, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me into the hills. Therefore, will I measure their former work in their bosom. You want to know why they're in the state they're in? It's a direct result of daddy's unfaithfulness and rebellion against God. Who says there's no such thing as consequences to sin? And yet, it's not just daddy's sin. Did you hear what uh, Isaiah said? The iniquities of your fathers, your iniquities and of your fathers. Hold your place here. I want you to turn over to Ezekiel. I know I didn't give you a heads up on that, but if you're at Jeremiah, past Lamentations, you're in Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel's an interesting fellow. He's an exilic prophet, meaning he's not in the land of the kingdom, formerly of the kingdom of David. He's not in Judah. In fact, in chapter one, he's, he's in the area beyond Jordan. But if you look, I want you to turn to Ezekiel, hold your place in these other passages. And look at Ezekiel chapter number 18. It's a prophecy, the children of Israel, in particular these descendants of the northern kingdom, were decrying against the Lord. Notice, if you will, in verse 2, he said, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten the sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? The idea is, Daddy made a sin, and because of what Daddy did, I'm in the plight today. Because of what Daddy did, I have sinned. The Lord says in verse 3, and this is a strong language. Think of it for a moment. As I live, saith the Lord. That's something a man would say. As I live, I'll never do this again. As I live, you better never do this again. But what about when an eternal God says, as I live? It is an intense, eternal condemnation that is proceeding about his mouth he said as I live saith the Lord God ye shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel behold all souls are mine as the soul of the father so also the soul of the son is mine and note this phrase because it's the first time in three consecutive uses in this chapter the soul that sinneth what's the reference or the completion of sentence, it shall die. But if a man be just and do that which is lawful and right, and hath not eaten upon my mountains, and neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath come near to uh, a mistress' woman, and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored to the debtor his place, he's been obedient to the commands of God. He's walked in my statutes in verse number 9. He's kept my judgments that he truly, he is just, he shall surely live, saith the Lord God. That's where Daniel found himself. That's where Hanani and Mishael and Azariah found himself. That's where the 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal in Elijah's time had found themselves. It was always a remnant of Israel that was dedicated and consecrated to the eternal truths of the Word of God. Yet these, this generation by which had sorely displeased God, verse number 19, they said, Why? Why doth not the son bear the iniquity of his father? When the son hath done that which is lawful and right and hath kept all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. Here's another time that passage is used. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Time will not permit us to go through, but look in verse number 32. You know, you think about God's sore displeasure. You think about the indignation that he had towards the fathers of Israel's time that had resisted and rebelled. And it wasn't just... Simply that generation, it was the host of generations before them as we'll see in a moment. And continuing with each generation, they had made a cognizant, intentional decision to resist the beckonings of God. They were wicked. They had defiled His temple. They had rejected His word. They had been a horrendous testimony among the nations of the world. They had at every opportunity breached and defected from the truths of the word of God. And look at what the Lord said in verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Here's a marvelous word to introduce our next thought back in Zechariah. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. Turn yourselves and live. You see, the result of these fathers, the reason God was so sorely displeased with them, as we'll see in verse number three, is they had constantly resisted the invitation that God had given them. Notice, if you will, verse 3. Therefore say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts. What's our word? Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will turn unto you, saith saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings but they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord." Generations had gone by. Prophets had come and prophets had gone. And yet one continual theme remained, a constant, uh, a constant intentional means of resisting the commands of God. So you look at what God calls to happen to them. Their parcel of land is desolate. In fact, it would be so desolate that Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 1 is broken to tears in the presence of a king because of how desolate the city of Jerusalem was. Moved with great, great fervor in his heart because the walls were breached and fallen down. Why did that happen? A direct consequence of the willfulness and rebelliousness of these individuals. The place of God had been desecrated. In fact, more than just Zion being desecrated, the temple of God had been demolished. It was torn down. That was the whole means by which Ezra was returning for. The people had been defeated. We read some time ago over in the scriptures uh, that as the last king of Israel, or really the kingdom of Judah is taken, he's really going to be a a surfing type king, uh, a surf king, if you will. Uh, He is going to be an under king. To Nebuchadnezzar, he'll pull his knees under Nebuchadnezzar's table and eat Nebuchadnezzar's bread for all the days of his life. What is left is a remnant that is in terrible disdain. Beside all of that, the people being sorely defeated, the practices of the temple, all of those things that would showcase the coming Messiah has been diminished. Everything's on pause. There's no temple. They could have had a temple 16 years ago. It's been paused. The last 70 years as they're in captivity, everything is paused. Various kings of the Gentiles will come and they will mock the holy name of God because his temple and his people have seemingly been defeated. All because of these fathers that resisted the preeminent invitation to turn. I think I highlighted just a moment ago, but in Jeremiah 32. Turn there, you're in Jeremiah. Just flip over there, I'll read this one verse. God's constant invitation, turn, 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 turn. Note what he says in verse 33. And they have turned unto me the back and not the face. Though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet have they not hearkened to receive instruction. But they set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it. What was their response? Jeremiah pictures it quite clearly. He said they have turned the back and not the face. There's no dialogue to be had. There's no desire to be following of God. Ezekiel in chapter 18 says, turn and ye shall live. You know, that's an immense calling that God has placed even today. Isaiah chapter 1 again gives the same admonition. Come ye, let us reason together, saith the Lord of hosts. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Come, come, turn, turn, repent, confess, forsake. That's the same thing that the Lord God has even today. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he, he hearkens to the saints of God. Come out from among them, saith the Lord, and be ye separate. And ye shall be my people, I shall be your God. James writes in James chapter 4, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. The constant cry, turn, turn from your former ways. Or the fathers would not hear. The fathers would not hearken. Ergo, the fathers in these times could not be helped. Yet God kept his word. In Micah chapter 6, the prophet says, Therefore ye shall bear the reproach of my people. Remember once again, Ezekiel chapter 33. I have no pleasure in the sin of the wicked. My desire is turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Here in Second Chronicles, let's read a few verses there in 2 Chronicles. Here in this historical account, notice if you will in chapter number 36. So one might think, well, how was God in His asking? Maybe not hearing Him means that they legitimately, they, they just didn't get it. They didn't pick it up. They didn't hearken. Maybe God in some seeming manner was not faithful in His off-beckoning to them. Maybe that here is the reason. Look in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and draw your eyes uh, down to verse number 14. It says, Moreover, all the chief of the priests... And the people transgressed very much after all the abomination of the heathen, and polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers rising up. What's the word? B times. You know what that means? Often. He didn't just send one prophet to them one time. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet, after prophet. Why? Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. How'd they respond, these fathers? But they mocked the messengers of God and they despised his word and they misused his prophets. Jeremiah knows a little something about that. You remember what happened with Jeremiah. He put the prophecy on paper that God told him to put on and delivered it to the king and the king cut it up and burned it. So he took him another scroll and wrote and continued faithfully and they jeered at him and they mocked him and the king had him thrown into the mire and he sank, the scripture says. And Jeremiah is in a time of emotional anguish as he sees that the children of Israel are on a collision course with the holiness of an almighty God, and he begs and he pleads, but much to no avail. No wonder Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet. They misused his prophets. I think of Isaiah. The historical account is that he was sawn asunder and he died something of a martyr's death. They mock the prophets of the Old Testament, they misused them, they abused them, they rejected all of the word that God had transmitted to them for the ears that could have saved not only themselves, but it could have saved their children and it could have saved their hope and dreams and aspirations and it could have brought great blessing at the appointed time had they only heeded to the commandments of God. Notice, if you will, in that verse... They did these things, misused his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. What's the last phrase? Till there was no remedy. No remedy. Many betimes the prophets were sent. You're in Jeremiah. Let me take you through a narrative here. Maybe, maybe a half dozen passages to look at. I'm just going to read one or two, but I want you to get the sense of what Zechariah is speaking of in chapter 1 and following. we look in chapter 3. Really, you could look at chapter 3 all the way down through the first part of chapter 4. But for time's sake, I'm only going to look at one verse. I'd encourage you to read it. But God has sent this prophecy, and he has begged him, turn, 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 and, and remove from your mind the idea that this happened once or twice. There are several prophets that God sends over several series of years and not to mention the unnamed prophets that we have not and even of those prophets that we have record of over and again, the same command goes forth. Look at chapter 3 and verse 6. And the Lord said also to me in the days of Joash the king. You see the mark of the Hebrew king there? Thou hast seen that which backsliding Israel done. Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree and there hath played the arlet. What he's referencing is they had went to these places to embrace idolatry. To embrace any God but the God of heaven. Notice if you will in chapter 7. Chapter 7. Verse number five, speaking again, the commands of God. For if ye thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger and the fatherless, if uh, you shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after the other gods in your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. That indication seems to tell me that had they turned they'd have never suffered the consequence of the diaspora. Oh, how Old Testament history would have changed dramatically. Had they never gone out, you never have a Nebuchadnezzar. Not in reference as we have them. Had they never gone out, you never have the problems that Ezra has. And 16 years of waiting. Had they never gone out, they wouldn't have needed to rebuild the temple as they are now. Had they never gone out, they wouldn't have went through the years of frustration and anguish which would lapse between the start of the building and the completion of the temple. Yet they would not hearken. Let me show you another one. Look in the 18th chapter. The 18th chapter of Jeremiah. Verse number 11. Now therefore, go to... Speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, "Thus saith the Lord: Behold, I frame evil against you, and devise a device against you. Return you now, every one, from his evil way, and make your ways and your doing good." Look at the next verse. And they said, "There is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices. We will every one do the imagination of his evil heart." What about that wickedness? One more passage to give you. Look in the 26th chapter. We've been to chapter 32 a couple of times. Look in chapter 26. Paul's there a moment. Verse number 13. Therefore, these words by Jeremiah the prophet, Now amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will repent him of the evil that he hath pronounced against you. As for me, behold, Jeremiah speaking, I am in your hand, do with me as seemeth good and meet unto you. They're still not willing to hear. As a consequence, Zachariah said, Your fathers, where are they? What happened to all your fathers? All that legacy, all that tradition, all that inheritance, all that promise, all that hope, what's happened? God has devised a device against them. God has prepared his consequences for them. The fathers are lost. Many of them, even in Jeremiah's time, had armed rebellion against the coming enemies. Though Jeremiah the prophet told them how vain it was to fight a defense of Jerusalem. Many of them fled down to Egypt and were slaughtered. Many of them stayed from thence, as I said, and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and met slaughter. Where are the fathers. They've all lost. And they lost their lives and their ambition and their hopes and dreams simply because they would not submit themselves to the commands and the law of God. Where are the prophets, he says? Where are the prophets? Well, they're gone too. They've concluded. You weren't listening to them. So God stopped sending them. And during this 70 years that they're there, really, there's very little word from God as the prophets would have. Oh, you have a couple here and there, but nowhere near the numerical quantity that existed before the diaspora. They had made their bed and now God had destined that they would rise and sleep and rise in that bed. Theirs was the end. Their rebellion had now brought its own consequences. No wonder Isaiah would say unto them, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts yet all the while harking them to turn ye from your evil ways. You know, these verses here that you find in verse number 6 and verse number 5 and 4, so hath he dealt with us, he concludes in verse number 6. Like as the Lord of hosts has thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so has he dealt with us. Our fathers refused to turn. Our fathers refused to submit to the commands of God, so hath He dealt with us, is the idea. and so similarly similar of what Moses would write in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe, to do all of His commandments and His statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. You look later in that same chapter. Similarly... All these curses shall come upon thee and shall pursue thee and overtake thee till thou be destroyed because thou hearkenest not unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded thee. This is probably the sternest message in all of Zechariah that identifies the reason they're in the circumstances they're in. You know, you survey these six verses And you can consider a number of truths that are eternal. For instance, the truth that there are conditions to the continual blessing of God. I think the key condition to God's blessing can be summarized in one great word, obedience. Isn't that what Samuel told Saul? Obedience is better than sacrifice. And to hearken that a fat of rams. Any time God would bless His people, be it those Old Testament Jews, or be it in this day the New Testament believer, you note of grand marvel that obedience is a key condition in order to have the peace of God and the will of God revealed. Why is it today that so many Christians experience in their life frustrations. And I'm not not talking about uh, some type of social gospel here. I'm just talking about in life, they seem to be defeated on every turn. Why is it that there's no inward peace that passes all understanding? And I would submit to you that one of the grand reasons is there's not compliance to the express commands of God. God has not changed. The God of the old is still the God of the New Testament. The desires of the God of the Old Testament are still his desires today. What pleased God yesterday will please him today. And if you and I would curry and have the blessings of the, uh, of the heavenly Father in our lives and in our hearts, we must be obedient to him. Obedience is still better than sacrifice. Now I think of Philippians, or how important it is to submit our way unto the Lord. I think of the psalmist, the 37th psalm speaks of the seventh thing. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to, way, it to pass. It's a prerequisite of obedience. Such is true there. A lesson, eternal lesson to be learned. The second lesson, well worth our consideration is this. God is greatly concerned about the character of his word. I would note there Verse number three, four, five, and six the essence of the prophets. God's word is characteristically unchanging. And because it's unchanging, the admonition goes forth don't waste it, don't despise it, and don't refuse it. You know, we live today among so many that are somewhat similar to the Old Testament timeline here. If they look at the Word of God and they know what the Word of God says, but they won't yield to the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you get a command, despise not prophesying. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, preach the Word. In 2 uh, uh, Timothy 4, and 1 Timothy chapter 6, talks about the man that will not submit to the wholesome words of truth. Despise God's Word. Reject its truth. Go your own way. Follow your own path. Resist the true, trusted Word of God. And you've resisted the very characteristic of the unchanging God. You've wasted it. And consequence must come. A third lesson is this, that God is eternally committed to His promises. You know, that for me personally is a wonderful one. I'm thankful that in a world In which men constantly break their promises, that God does not behave himself like a man. What's uniquely interesting here in Zechariah is God's about to renew the promises he's made. He will not, Zechariah will say later, cast off his people forever. I can't help but think of Romans chapter 11. Hath God forsaken? Has God cast off his people? God forbid. For the Jerusalem people here for 70 years, he has set them aside. For 70 years, they've been the laughingstock. For 70 years, they've lived in amidst individuals that have stolen their land and their inheritance. But has God forgotten them? No. God is committed to his promises. You know, sometimes we look at the promises of God and we say, well, there's just no way God can ever fulfill those promises. It just could never happen. I want you to look up here in Zechariah just for a moment. Look at verse 3. You'll find this so many times, but it's wonderful to point out. Look at verse number 3. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Do you see that? Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. That's quite interesting. You you look at this. I I don't know that there's another prophet in all the scriptures per capita that uses the phrase the Lord of hosts more than Zechariah. The Lord of hosts is the Lord Sabaoth. That's what it means. He's the Lord of vast dominion. He is the Lord of vast and omnipotent power. He's the Lord of greatness. He is the Lord of goodness. In a military aspiration, he is the captain of a great host of unseen individuals. He's the captain of all of heaven. Now, it's amazing because Nebuchadnezzar thought he was a pretty important king. And Cyrus, the moniker, the Great, is known throughout the annals of history. And yet these Samaritans would rise up just some years, 16 years or so before Zechariah. And though they were not a nation to themselves and not a people, they, through civil litigation, were able to stop the building of the temple And the people of God had become discouraged in the way. Even Zerubbabel, who would be the civil leader of Jerusalem, was discouraged in the way. And Joshua the high priest is discouraged among the way. But the prophecy to Zechariah reminds them that God is committed to his purposes. He is indeed the Lord of hosts. Who is likened to our God? He is a great God. Abraham in his old age, when Sarah laughed about the promises of God, God's retort. Is his arm too short that he cannot save? Has he grown old and therefore feeble? Has he forgotten his promises? I would submit to you that not only does Zachariah identify him so often as the Lord of hosts, but look in verse number 3 and following again, you'll see it soaked throughout these six verses. He references the personal name of God, Jehovah. You'll see it in verse 1, the word of the Lord. You'll see it in verse 2, the Lord hath been displeased. You'll see it several times in verse 3 as we highlighted. You'll see it at the end of verse 4, saith the Lord. You'll find it throughout verse 6, like us unto the Lord of hosts. All the way down through this, you'll find the name Lord. He referenced himself in a personal way to his people, Jehovah. I would submit to you this, that by my count, I think the name Lord Jehovah is mentioned 53 times in the book of Zechariah, alone. It's only 14 chapters. By comparison, Haggai, in his um, two chapters, references it a mere 14 times. Malachi, only 24 times. But the lesson here for the children of Israel, for the kingdom, the lesson for us, the eternal lesson is God is committed to His purpose. He knows His people and He is sufficient to provide. Give you one more lesson. And this is the longer lesson. God's cause will always be continued. What was the cause? What was the cause? Well, you read down through Zachariah, the cause is the Son, the branch, the King. God's calls from the dawn of creation until the time he returns with ten thousands of his saints that, that uh, uh, Enoch prophesied of. It's recorded for us in Jude. Is the salvation of souls, the coming Redeemer. Prophesied in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5, and here in just a few short years from the writing of Zechariah, it would be realized. And on the eighth day after the nativity, that Redeemer would enter into the very temple that Zechariah is going to consider and consecrate and, and encourage the people of God to build over the space of four years. That very Redeemer would enter this temple and he would be the Savior of all men, especially they that believe. God's calls will not be frustrated. He will accomplish, Isaiah said, his word will accomplish that which he has intended it to do. These are eternal principles. And Zachariah here, reminding us as his name, indicates God remembers. He remembers the conditions that he has placed upon people. He remembers the characters of his word. He remembers the commitment to his purpose. And he remembers the eternal calls that must continue. The redemption of humanity. Oh my, verse number six could have been written had they been obedient in a more fantastic way that he would have been able to deal with them as his heart desired, as opposed to their will demanded. The reality is, in this time frame, the same as it is here today. How is God dealing with you? Are you resisting his word? Are you ignoring and failing to hearken? And friend, God cherishes his worth we cannot resist it and expect to have God's blessing. We cannot demean it and expect God to exalt us. For God has a purpose. And though God does not love the destruction of the wicked, His holiness demands justice. Therefore, God remembers. Let's stand to our feet. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.